friends, and welcome back to Bitching About the Mabinogion. This week we are reading the second branch of the Mabinogi, and with that I'm going to jump right in. Bendegaid Vran, son of Llyr, was crowned king over this island, and invested with the crown of London. One afternoon he was in Harlech in Ardidwi, at one of his courts. He was sitting on the rock of Harlech, above the sea, with his brother Manawiran, son of Llyr, and his two brothers on his mother's side, Nisian and Evnisian, and noblemen too, as was appropriate around a king. His two brothers on his mother's side were the sons of Euroswith by his own mother Penarthin, daughter of Beli, son of Minogan. One of these was a good lad. He could make peace between two armies when they were most enraged. That was Nisian. The other would cause two of the most loving brothers to fight. The names Nisian and Evnisian literally mean peace and unpeace, which is telling. As they were sitting there, they could see thirteen ships coming from the south of Ireland, heading towards them easily and swiftly, the wind behind them, and they were approaching with speed. I can see ships over there, coming boldly towards the shore, said the king. Tell the men of the court to put on their armour, and go and find out what their intentions are. The men armed themselves and went down to meet them. Having seen the ships at close quarters, the men were certain that they had never seen ships in a more perfect condition than these with their fair, beautiful, exquisite banners of brocaded silk. Suddenly, one of the ships overtook the others, and they saw a shield being raised above the ship's deck, with the point of the shield upwards as a sign of peace. The king's men approached them so that they were within speaking distance. The others put out boats and approached the shore and greeted the king. The king could hear them from where he was seated on the high rock above their heads. "'May God prosper you,' he said, "'and welcome. Who are these ships, and who is their chief?' "'Lord,' they said, "'Matholoch, king of Ireland, is here, and these are his ships.' "'What does he want?' said the king. "'Does he want to come ashore?' No, Lord, they said, unless you grant him his request. He has business with you. What sort of request does he have, said the king. He wishes to unite your two families, Lord, they said. He has come to ask for Branwen, daughter of Llyr, and if you agree, he wishes to join together the island of the mighty and Ireland, so that they might be stronger. By the way, can I just say that calling Britain the Island of the Mighty is the best fucking poetic name for a place I've ever come across, and I love it dearly. Very well, said Bendegaidran. Let him come ashore, and we will take advice on the matter. That answer was taken to Mytholoch. I will go gladly, he said. He came ashore and was made welcome and there was a great crowd in the court that night, what with Mytholoch's retinue and that of the court. First thing next day, they took counsel. I want you to keep an eye out in this story for all of the occasions on which decisions are made after taking advice or taking counsel, because it's actually very plot-relevant and very telling. They decided to give Branwen to Mytholoch. She was one of the three chief maidens of this island, she was the most beautiful girl in the world. We have no idea, by the way, who the three chief maidens are, apart from Branwen. There's a lot of speculation. And also the word that is translated here as maidens is 
potentially ladies or queens or matriarchs or like it's something to do with women we're just not sure exactly what the word means they set a date for Mytholoch to sleep with her at Aberfrau, and they left Harlech. They all set off for Aberfrau, Mytholoch and his retinue in the ships, Bendegaidfran and his own retinue over land, until they came to Aberfrau. There the feast began, and they sat down. This is how they sat. The king of the island of the mighty, with Manawidan son of Llyr on one side, and Mytholoch on the other, with Branwen daughter of Llyr next to him. They were not in a house, but in tents, Bendegaidvran had never been able to fit inside any house. So there's this thing about this story that Bendegaidvran is a giant, he's so big he's never been able to fit in a house, and we're all like, okay, but he's got a brother and a sister and two half-brothers in this story, and there is no indication that any of them are differently sized than ordinary humans. It's just Bendegaidvran. He's just weird that way. They began the celebration, and continued to carouse and converse. When they thought it was better to sleep than to continue carousing, they went to sleep. And that night, Matholoch slept with Branwen. The next day, everyone in the court got up, and the officers began to discuss the billeting of the horses and grooms, and they billeted them in every region as far as the sea. Then, one day, Evnisian, the quarrelsome man of whom we spoke above, happened to come across the lodgings of Mytholoch's horses, and he asked whose horses they were. These are the horses of Mytholoch, king of Ireland, they said. What are they doing here? he said. The king of Ireland is here, and he has slept with Branwen, your sister, and these are his horses. Is that what they have done with such a fine maiden, and my sister at that, given her away without my permission? They could not have insulted me more, he said. And then comes the episode known as the maiming of the horses. If this is distressing to you, just skip the next 30 seconds or so. Because it's graphic. Then he went for the horses and cut their lips to the teeth and their ears down to their heads and their tails to their backs. And where he could get a grip on the eyelids, he cut them to the bone. And in that way he maimed the horses so that they were no good for anything. So, like, that's fucked up. It's fucked up. It's also very specific. Like, he's not just generically hurting these horses. He's very specifically injuring them in a particular way, all of them individually, in such a way that it does very little to, like, the main body of the horse, and yet it's, you know clearly incredibly disabling for those horses, right? And just about everyone who's, like, looked at this tale and studied this tale has been like, that can't just be some random shit that got made up for this story in particular. There's got to be some sort of mythic antecedent to this thing, some sort of context that makes this make sense. Do we have that context? No. It's just a weird fucking batshit thing that Ephnissian did which frankly could be the subheading of this story, weird fucking batshit things Ephnisian did. More on that later. The news reached Mytholoch, and he was told how his horses had been maimed and spoiled so that they were no good for anything. Well, lord, said one, you have been insulted, and it was done deliberately. 
God knows, but I find it strange, if they wanted to insult me, that they should have first given me such a fine maiden, of such high rank, so beloved by her family. Lord, said another, it's perfectly clear. There is nothing for you to do but to return to your ships. So Mytholoch made for his ships. The news reached Bendigide Run that Mytholoch was leaving the court, without asking, without permission. Messengers went to ask why he was going. The messengers who went were Ivig son of Anarog and Hivaid Hir. Those men caught up with him, and asked him what was his intention and why he was leaving. God knows, he said, if I had known, I would not have come here. I've been completely insulted. No one has ever been on a worse expedition than this one, and a strange thing has happened to me. What is that? they said. I was given Branwen, daughter of Fleur, one of the three chief maidens of this island, and daughter to a king of the Island of the Mighty, and I slept with her, but after that I was insulted. And I find it strange that the insult was not done before such an excellent maiden as that was given to me. God knows, Lord, that insult was not done to you with the approval of the one who rules the court, they said, nor any one of his council. And although you consider it a disgrace, this insult and deception is worse for Bendigaidfran than it is for you. Yes, he said, perhaps so. But yet Bendigaidfran cannot undo the insult just because of that. The men returned with that answer to Bendigaidfran and told him what Mytholoch had said. Well, said Bendigaidfran, it is no good if he goes away angry. We cannot allow it. We agree, Lord, they said. Send messengers after him again. I will, he said. Arise, Manawidan, son of Llyr, and Hivaith Hir, and Inig Glew Isquith, and go after him, he said. And tell him that he shall have a sound horse for each one that was maimed, and also he shall have as his honour price a rod of silver as thick as his little finger and as tall as himself, and a plate of gold as broad as his face and tell him what sort of man did this, and how it was done against my will, and that a brother on my mother's side did it, and it is not easy for me either to kill him or destroy him. Let Mytholoch come and see me, he said, and I will make peace on whatever terms he wishes. So there's some Welsh law stuff going on here. First of all, the insult was done by a kinsman of Bendigaidfran, and because of the way Welsh kinship ties work, Bendigaidfran literally cannot attack Ethnisian without a whole lot of really bad shit happening. So that means that he can't punish Evnisian for what he did. So all he can do in this instance is offer recompense to Mytholoch, which he does. And so what he offers is both recompense for the injury, that is a sound horse for each one that was maimed, and he offers honour price or face price. And the way the Welsh law sort of works is that there's the recompense for the injury, and there's the face price that compensates for the insult. And the face price that Bendigide run offers here of the silver rod and the plate of gold fits with what you would give to a king. The messengers went after Mytholoch and repeated those words in a friendly manner, and he listened to them. Men, he said, we will take counsel. He took counsel. They decided that were they to refuse the offer, they would be more likely to get further shame than further compensation. So Mytholoch made up his mind to accept. They came to the court in peace. The tents and pavilions were arranged as if they were laying out a hall, and they went to eat. And as they had sat at the beginning of the feast, so they sat now. Bendigaidvan and Mytholoch began to converse. 
but it seemed to Ben de Guidron that Matholoch's conversation was lifeless and sad, whereas he had always been cheerful before that. And he thought that the chieftain was downhearted because of how little compensation he had received for the wrong done to him. Sir, said Ben de Guidron, your conversation is not as good as it was the other night, and if it's because you feel your compensation is too little, I shall add to it as you wish, and tomorrow your horses shall be given to you. Lord, he said, may God repay you. I'll increase your compensation too, said Bendigaidfan. I will give you a cauldron, and the property of the cauldron is that if you throw into it one of your men who is killed today, then by tomorrow he will be as good as ever, except that he will not be able to speak. Note that Bendigaidfan did not take counsel on this matter. He just did it impulsively. This is important. Matholoch thanked him for that and was extremely happy on account of the cauldron. The next day his horses were handed over to him, so long as there were tame horses to give. From there Matholoch was taken to another comet region, and foals were handed over to him until his payment was complete. And for that reason the comet was called Talabolion from then on. And here we see, yet again, the Welsh obsession with coming up with stories to back up the names of places. Tal Ebolion really could mean payment of the foals. It's more likely that that's not why the place is called Talabolion. The second night, they sat together. Lord, said Matholoch, where did you get the cauldron that you gave me? I got it from a man who had been in your country, said Bendigaidfran, and for all I know, that is where he found it. Who was he, he said. Hlasar Hlaiskivnewid, he said. And he came here from Ireland, with Kamidai Kamenvoth, his wife, and they escaped from the iron house in Ireland when it was made white-hot around them, and they fled from Ireland. I am surprised that you know nothing about it. I do, Lord, said Matholoch, and I will tell you as much as I know. I was hunting in Ireland one day, on top of a mound overlooking a lake called the Lake of the Cauldron, and I saw a large man with yellow-red hair coming out from the lake with a cauldron on his back. He was a huge, monstrous man, too, with an evil, ugly look about him, and a woman followed him, and if he was large, the woman was twice his size. And they came out to me and greeted me. Well, I said, how are things going with you? It's like this, Lord, said the man. In a month and a fortnight this woman will conceive, and the boy who is then born of that pregnancy in a month and a fortnight will be a fully armed warrior. I took them in to maintain them. They were with me for a year. During that year no one objected to them, but from then on people resented them. And before the end of the fourth month of the second year they were causing people to hate and loathe them throughout the land, insulting, harassing and tormenting noble men and women. From then on my people rose against me to ask me to get rid of them, and gave me a choice, either my kingdom or these people. I left it to the council of my country to decide what should be done about them. They would not go of their own free will. They did not have to go against their will because of their ability to fight. And then, in this dilemma, it was decided to build a chamber completely of iron, and when the chamber was ready, all the smiths in Ireland and all those who owned tongs and hammers were summoned there, and charcoal was piled up to the top of the chamber, and the woman and her husband and her children were served with plenty of food and drink. And when it was clear that they were drunk, the smiths began to set fire to the charcoal around the chamber, and blew the bellows that had been placed around the house, each man with two bellows, and they began to blow the bellows until the house was white-hot around them. And then the family took counsel in the middle of the chamber, and the husband waited until the iron wall was white. 
and because of the great heat, he charged at the wall with his shoulder and broke out through it, with his wife following. And only he and his wife escaped. After that, Lord, said Mytholoch to Bendigaidfran, I suppose he came over to you. He did indeed, said Bendigaidfran, and he gave the cauldron to me. What sort of welcome did you give them, Lord? I dispersed them throughout the land, and they are numerous and prosper everywhere, and strengthen whatever place they happen to be in with the best men and weapons anyone has seen. This is a nice little fable about how kings should deal with migrants. Well, not necessarily, but it has been interpreted that way. And it's an interesting contrast between Matholoch and Bendegaidvran that Matholoch here represents the unwise decision that this group are all clustered together and became troublemakers and caused problems throughout the country, whereas Bendegaidvran spread them throughout the kingdom and the kingdom benefited from their strength. That night, they continued to talk and sing and carouse as long as it pleased them. When they realised it was better to sleep than to sit up longer, they went to sleep, and so they enjoyed the feast. When it finished, Mytholoch, together with Branwen, set out for Ireland. They set out from Abermenai in their thirteen ships, and came to Ireland. In Ireland they received a great welcome. Not one man of rank or noble woman in Ireland came to visit Branwen to whom she did not give either a brooch or a ring or a treasured royal jewel, and it was remarkable to see such things leaving the court. Furthermore, she gained renown that year, and flourished with honour and companions. Meanwhile, she became pregnant. After the appropriate time had passed, she gave birth to a boy. They named him Gwern, son of Mytholoch. The boy was put out to be fostered to the very best place for men in Ireland. So here we're seeing that Bramwell is doing all the duties of the queen. That she is generous, that she had a son, that she's got renown, she's got companions and honour, and everyone loves her. Then in the second year, there was a murmuring of dissatisfaction in Ireland because of the insult that Mytholoch had received in Wales and the disgrace he had suffered regarding his horses. His foster brothers and the men closest to him taunted him with it quite openly, and there was such an uproar in Ireland that there was no peace for Mytholoch until he avenged the insult. They took revenge by sending Branwen from her husband's chamber and forcing her to cook for the court, and they had the butcher come to her every day after he had chopped up the meat and give her a box on the ear, and that is how her punishment was carried out. So, there's something interesting about Branwen's punishment here. Like, having her work in the kitchens is obviously a big downgrade for a queen, but the box on the ear thing from the butcher is just a little bit weird. And we have places elsewhere in the Mabinogi where there's explicit reference to Welsh law that states that to strike a blow to a queen is one of the ways to do serious insult to a queen, which also reflects on the king. So this is so it's not just a physical punishment, it's also a insult to her, almost in recompense, in in payback for an insult received. Now, Lord, said his men to Mytholoch, set an embargo on the ships and the rowing boats and the coracles, so that no one may go to Wales, and whoever comes here from Wales imprison them and do not let them return in case they find out what is happening. They agreed on that. So here we have acknowledgement by the people in Ireland that, like, what they're doing is totally not legit and will buy them the enmity of the folk in Wales if it is found out. 
This continued for not less than three years. In the meantime, Branwen reared a starling at the end of her kneading trough, and taught it to speak, and told the bird what kind of man her brother was, and she brought a letter telling of her punishment and dishonour. The letter was tied to the base of the bird's wings, and it was sent to Wales, and the bird came to this island. I love how she spends this time training a bird to speak, and then, like, gives it a letter. This is one of those instances when you're like, okay, there was totally a version of this story where she gave the bird a verbal message and the bird actually spoke a verbal message, but then over time it turned into a letter and possibly this reflects a shift from orality to literacy in society, but now just stands as one of those little oddities. The bird found Bendegaidran in Kairsaint in Arvon, where he was at a council of his one day. The bird alighted on his shoulder, and ruffled its feathers until the letter was discovered, and they realised that the bird had been reared among people. Then the letter was taken and examined. When it was read, Bendegaidran grieved to hear how Branwen was being punished, and there and then he sent messengers to muster the entire island. Then he had the full levy of 154 districts come to him, and he complained personally to them of his sister's punishment. Then he took counsel. They agreed to set out for Ireland, and leave seven men behind as leaders, together with their seven horsemen, and Caradog, son of Bran, in command. So, I've been waiting for an appropriate moment to bring this up. Caradog, son of Bran. Bendigaidran is an interesting name, because it's actually two elements. Bendigaid, meaning blessed, and Vran, which is the soft-mutated form of Bran. So you could also translate that name as Blessed Bran. Intriguingly, the name Branwen is the element Bran with a suffix for, like, feminine holy person. Kind of. Like, when kind of means fair, but it also kind of means holy a little bit. So we kind of have the brother and sister pair of... Blessed Bran and Holy Bran, with one having the, like, more... the the older Welsh suffix, and one having the more Christian prefix. Bran means raven. So it's possible that they are descended from some sort of deity that was a singular deity, or descended from some sort of pair of twin deities, or something like that. But Caradog, son of Bran may actually be Bendegaidran's son. Maybe. Those men were left in Edeirnion, and because of that, the name Saith Marchog was given to the township, which means the Hill of Seven Horsemen. The seven men were Caradog, son of Bran, and Hvaith Hir, and Inig Glau Isquith, and Idig, son of Anarog Wachtkron, and Fodor, son of Ervith, and Ulch Minaskun, and Hlashar son of Hlasar Hlaiskengwid, and Pendaran Divid, and then a young lad was with them. Those seven stayed behind as seven stewards to look after this island, and Karadog son of Bran was their chief steward. So this is those, uh, this is one of those little moments where we actually see crossovers between the characters in the second branch and the characters in the first branch, because we have mention of Pendaran Divid, then a young lad, who 
uh, as you may recall, was the guy who confused the shit out of me by being not the same as Pliff Pandevic Divid, and just miraculously turning up at the end of the story of Pliff Pandevic Divid to become the foster father of Praderi. So, that guy. And one of the other characters here is Hivive Hir, who is the father of Priannon, the woman who married Pliff Pandevic Divid. So it's clear that even though most of the main characters in the first branch aren't involved in the second branch, there's still a degree of linkages in terms of the genealogies. Bendegaidvan and the army we mentioned sailed towards Ireland, and the sea was not wide then. Bendegaidvan waded across. There were only two rivers, called the Llee and the Archan. Later, the sea spread out when it flooded the kingdoms. But Bendegaidvan walked, carrying all the stringed instruments on his own back, and made for Ireland's shore. Mytholoch's swineherds were on the seashore one day, busy with their pigs, and because of what they saw on the sea, they went to Mytholoch. Lord, they said, greetings. May God prosper you, he said, and do you have any news? Lord, they said, we have extraordinary news. We have seen a forest on the sea, where never before we saw a single tree. That's strange, he said. Could you see anything else? Yes, Lord, they said. We could see a huge mountain beside the forest, and it was moving, and there was a very high ridge on the mountain, and a lake on each side of the ridge, and the forest and the mountain and all of it was moving. Well, said Mytholoch, there is no one here who would know anything about that, unless Branwen knows something. Go and ask her. Messengers went to Branwen. Lady, they said, what do you think it is? Though I am no lady, she said, I know what it is. The men of the Island of the Mighty coming over, having heard of my punishment and dishonour. What is the forest they saw on the sea, they said. Masts of ships and yard arms, she said. Oh, they said, what was the mountain they saw alongside the ships? That was Bendegaidvran, my brother, wading across, she said. There was no ship big enough for him. What was the very high ridge and the lake on each side of the ridge? That was him, looking at this island, she said. He is angry. The two lakes on either side of the ridge are his two eyes on each side of his nose. Then they quickly mustered all the fighting men of Ireland and of the coastal regions and took counsel. Lord, said his men to Mytholoch, the only advice is to retreat across the Liffey, a river in Ireland, and put the Liffey between you and him, and then destroy the bridges that cross the river. There are lodestones on the riverbed. Neither ships nor vessels can sail across. I'm just going to check the footnotes for notes on what they mean by lodestones there. Ah, so they do actually literally mean lodestones, um, magnetic stones. The idea is that they would pull nails out of any ships that approached and as such should be avoided. So they retreated over the river and destroyed the bridge. Bendegaidvrad landed with his fleet and approached the river bank. Lord, said his nobleman, you know the strange thing about the river, no one can sail across it, nor is there a bridge. What shall we do for a bridge? Nothing, except that he who is a leader, let him be a bridge, said Bendegaidvrad. I will be a bridge, he said. This was the first time that saying was uttered, and it is still used as a proverb. We don't have examples of use of this proverb. 
We only know it exists because of this story. Then after Bendigaidvan had laid down across the river, hurdles were placed on him, and his men walked on top of him to the other side. Then, as soon as he got up, Matholok's messengers approached him, and greeted him, and addressed him on behalf of Matholok, his kinsman, who, they said, wished nothing but good to come Bendigaidvan's way. And Matholok is giving the kingship of Violand to Gwern, son of Matholok, your nephew, your sister's son, and will invest him in your presence, to make up for the injustice and injury that was done to Branwen and make provision for Mytholic wherever you like, either here or in the Island of the Mighty. Well, said Bentegaidvan, if I myself cannot have the kingship, perhaps I should take advice regarding your message. But until a better response comes, you will get no answer from me. Very well, they said, we will bring you the best response we can get. Wait for our message. I will if you return quickly, he said. The messengers set off and went to Mytholoch. Lord, they said, prepare a better response for Bendegaidvran. He would not listen at all to the one we took him. My men, said Mytholoch, what is your advice? Lord, they said, there is only one thing to do. He has never been able to fit inside a house, they said. Build a house in his honour, so that there is room for him and the men of the Island of the Mighty in one half of the house, and for you and your troops in the other and place your kingship at his disposal, and pay homage to him. And because of the honour in building the house, for he has never had one into which he could fit, he will make peace with you. The messengers took the offer to Bendigaidvan, and he took advice. He decided to accept, and that was all done on Branwen's advice, because she feared that the country would be laid waste. The terms of peace were arranged, and the house was built, large and spacious but the Irish had a cunning plan. They placed a peg on either side of each column of the one hundred columns in the house, and hung a hide bag on each peg with an armed man in each one of them. Evnizian entered the house ahead of the troops of the Island of the Mighty, and cast fierce, ruthless glances around the house. He caught sight of the hide bags along the pillars. "'What is in this bag?' he said to one of the Irishmen. Flower, friend, he answered. And, warning for gore over the next minute or so, so the short version is he goes and sneakily kills them all in such a way that the guy watching him can't object. So please feel free to skip ahead by about a minute if you would like to avoid the description of how he does so. Ephnissian prodded the bag until he found the man's head, and he squeezed the head until he could feel his fingers sinking into the brain through the bone. He left that one, and put his hand on another bag, and said, "'What have we here?' "'Flower, friend,' said the Irishman. Ephnissian played the same game with each of them, so that not a man was left alive of the entire two hundred, apart from one. He came to that one, and asked, "'What have we here?' "'Flower, friend,' said the Irishman. Ephnisian prodded the bag until he found the man's head, and just as he had squeezed the heads of the others, so he squeezed this one. He could feel armour on the head of this one. He did not let him go until he had killed him. And then he sang in England. "'There is in this bag a different kind of flower. Champions, warriors, attackers in battle, against fighters prepared for combat.' 
Evnizian. You're always so fucking weird. More on that later. Then the troops entered the house. The men of the island of Ireland... It's really hard to distinguish those two words. The island of Ireland. This is the problem of speaking a non-rhotic version of English. If I was American, it wouldn't be a problem. I'd just say the island of Ireland. (sighs) You guys are just going to have to live with it. The men of the island of Ireland entered the house on the one side, and the men of the island of the mighty on the other. As soon as they sat down, they were reconciled, and the boy was invested with the kingship. Then, when peace had been made, Bendegaidran called the boy to him. The boy went from Bendegaidran to Manawidan, and everyone who saw him loved him. From Manawidan, Nisian, son of Euroswith, called the boy to him. The boy went to him graciously. Why does my nephew, my sister's son, not come to me? said Evnissian. Even if he were not king of Ireland, I would still like to make friends with the boy. Let him go gladly, said Bendegaidfram. The boy went to him cheerfully. I confess to God, said Evnissian to himself, that the outrage I shall now commit is one the household will never expect. And once again we have Evnissian doing something horrific. He kills the kid. If you would like to skip the description of how he kills the child, that'll be over the next minute or so. And he gets up and takes the boy by his feet, and immediately, before anyone in the house can lay a hand on him, he hurls the boy headfirst into the fire. When Branwen sees her sons burning in the fire, she tries to jump into the fire from where she is sitting between her two brothers. But Bendegaidron seizes her with one hand, and seizes his shield with the other. Then everyone in the house leaps up. And that was the greatest uproar ever by a crowd in one house, as each one took up arms. Then Mordwith Tithlion said, Hounds of Gwern, beware of Mordwith Tithlion. As each went for his weapons, Bendegaidran held Branwen between his shield and his shoulder. Again, Evnizian, what the fuck? The Irish began to kindle a fire under the cauldron of rebirth. Then they threw the corpses into the cauldron until it was full and they would get up the next morning as well as before, except that they could not talk. When Ephnissian saw the corpses and no room anywhere for the men of the Island of the Mighty, he said to himself, Oh God, he said, woe is me that I am the cause of this mountain of the men of the Island of the Mighty, and shame on me, he said, unless I try to save them from this. He creeps in among the corpses of the Irish, and two bare-backed Irishmen come up to him and throw him into the cauldron, as if he were an Irishman. He stretches himself out in the cauldron so that the cauldron breaks into four pieces, and his own heart breaks too. And because of that, such victory as there was went to the men of the Island of the Mighty. Once again, what the fuck, Ephnissian? Ephnissian is such a weird fucking character in this story. Everything he does is contrary and inexplicable. He maims the horses and insults Metholoch with them, causing a whole bunch of trouble. And then later he helps by killing all of the disguised warriors of Ireland and thus saving the the British from ambush. And then he kills his nephew inexplicably. He is like specifically says in the story, no one's going to guess what I'm going to do now because it's completely weird, and then kills the kid. And then he saves the men of the Island of the Mighty from losing the battle 
by destroying the cauldron of rebirth, and we're just like, what the fuck, Evnissian? And the only real explanation we have for Evnissian is in his name. Evnissian Unpeace. He is... He makes way more sense as, like, uh, a trickster or chaos deity than he does as, like, a person. He's just fundamentally in himself contrary and chaotic and troublemaking. And that's just not – it's not just who he is. It's what he is. Anyway, fuck Evnissian. He's such a shit. There was no real victory, except that seven men escaped, and Bendegaidvan was wounded in the foot with a poisoned spear. The seven men who escaped were Prideri, Manawidan, Glivii son of Taran, Taliesin, Inog, Grithai son of Miriel, and Halin son of Gwynhen. Observant listeners will have caught the name Prideri at the beginning of that list, which is weird because earlier we met Pendaran Divid, who was but a young lad at the time, and we all know that Pendaran Divid is Prideri's foster father. This is an inconsistency that nobody has explained. It just is. Then Bendegaidvan ordered his head to be cut off. And take my head, he said, and carry it to the Gwynvrun in London, and bury it with its face towards France, and it will take you a long time. You will feast in Harlech for seven years, with the birds of Rhiannon singing to you, and you will find the head to be as good company as it ever was when it was on me, and you will stay for eighty years in Gwales in Penvrol, and so long as you do not open the door towards Abba Henvelin, facing Cornwall, you can remain there and the head will not decay. But as soon as you open that door, you can stay no longer. Make for London to bury the head. And now set off across the sea. Then his head was cut off, and they set out across the sea with the head, those seven men and Branwen as the eighth. They came ashore at Aber Alau in Talebolion, and they sat down and rested. She looked at Ireland, and at the island of the mighty, what she could see of them. Oh, son of God, she said, woe that I was ever born. Two good islands have been laid waste because of me. She gives a mighty sigh, and with that her heart breaks, and they make a four-sided grave for her, and bury her there on the banks of the Alal. Branwen is like the most tragic female character in the whole of the Mabinogion. She gets to talk in two sections. She talks when she's like, oh, that's my brother coming, and she talks here. And her actions in this story are to be married off, to have a son, to be insulted and punished for several years, to be reunited with her brother and then to have her son killed in front of her, to see a massive battle between both of her peoples, and to see her brother poisoned, and then to die of grief. Just, her story is so tragic. And more than any of the women in the four branches of the Mabinogi, she is an object in this story. She doesn't, she does act to bring her brother to Ireland, but mostly in this story she is acted upon. Then the seven men journeyed towards Harlech, carrying the head. As they were travelling, they met a company of men and women. 
Do you have any news? said Manawedan. No, they said, except that Kaswathlon, son of Beli, has overrun the island of the mighty, and is crowned king in London. What happened to Karadog, son of Bran, and the seven men who were left with him on this island? they said. Kaswathlon attacked them, and six men were killed, and Karadog's heart broke from bewilderment at seeing the sword kill his men and not knowing who killed them. Kaswathlon had put on a magic cloak so that no one could see him killing the men. They could only see the sword. Kaswathlon did not want to kill Karadog. He was his nephew, his cousin's son, and he was one of the three people who broke their hearts from sorrow. Pendaran Divid, who was a young lad with the seven men, escaped to the woods, they said. Then they went to Harlech, and sat down and were regaled with food and drink. As soon as they began to eat and drink, three birds came and began to sing them a song, and all the songs they had heard before were harsh compared to that one. They had to gaze far out over the sea to catch sight of the birds, yet their song was as clear as if the birds were there with them, and they feasted for seven years. At the end of the seventh year they set out for Gwales in Penthrow. There was a pleasant royal dwelling for them there, above the sea, and there was a large hall, and they went to the hall. They could see two doors open. The third door was closed, the one facing Cornwall. See over there, said Manawidan, the door we must not open. That night they stayed there contented and lacking nothing. And of all the sorrow they had themselves seen and suffered, they remembered none of it, nor of any grief in the world. And there they spent eighty years, so that they were not aware of ever having spent a more pleasurable or more delightful time. It was no more unpleasant than when they first arrived, nor could anyone tell by looking at the other that he had aged in that time. Having the head there was no more unpleasant than when Bendigaidvan had been alive with them. Because of those eighty years, this was called the Assembly of the Noble Head. The one which went to Ireland was the Assembly of Branwen and Mytholoch. One day, Halin, son of Gwyn, said, Shame on my beard unless I open the door to find out if what they are saying about it is true. He opened the door and looked at Cornwall and at Aberhenvelen. And when he looked, every loss they had ever suffered, and every kinsman and companion they had lost, and every ill that had befallen them was as clear as if they had encountered it in that very place, and most of all concerning their lord. And from that moment they could not rest, but made for London with the head. Although the road was long, they came at last to London, and buried the head on the Gwynfren. And that was one of the three fortunate concealments when it was concealed, and one of the three unfortunate disclosures when it was disclosed. For no oppression would ever come across the sea to this island while the head was in that hiding place. And that is how the story goes. The tale is called The Men Who Set Out From Ireland. So this head is buried under this hill in London, like facing out towards France. And the story goes that it was uncovered by Arthur, who was like, ha, no one's going to protect Britain except for me. I'm not having this head of this previous king overshadowing my rule and then unburied it, and so the Anglo-Saxons were able to come from Europe and attack Britain, and of course later the French. Also, the story goes. In Ireland, no one was left alive except for five pregnant women in a cave in the wilds of Ireland. Those five women, at exactly the same time, gave birth to five sons. And they reared those five sons until they were big lads, and their thoughts turned to women, and they lusted after them. Then each lad slept promiscuously with each other's mother, ill, and lived in the land and ruled it, and divided it between the five of them. 
and the five provinces of Ireland still reflect that division. And they searched the country where battles had taken place, and found gold and silver until they grew wealthy. And that is how this branch of the Mabinogi ends, concerning the blow to Branwen, which was one of the three unfortunate blows in this island, and the assembly of Bran, when the army of 154 districts went to Ireland to avenge the blow to Branwen, and the feasting in Harlech for seven years, and the singing of the birds of Frianon, and the assembly of the head for eighty years. There's a lot that's fucked up in that story. There's just... a lot. Mostly because of Ephnician. Fuck Ephnician. Bitching about the Mabinogion is told by Gwen Verch David and produced by Amanda Martell. Take care, and thanks for listening.